Hi, I'm Caitlin Burns. You may know me from expanding some of your favorite story worlds, including Pirates of the Caribbean, Avatar, The Amazing Spider-Man, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and more. And you're listening to Kyle on the Isle. And welcome to Kyle on the Isle. I'm Kyle Olson. Have you ever sat through a 90-minute movie or binged a limited series and still felt that itch for more? Well, that's where our guest today steps in and lights up the show. Welcome to the world of Caitlin Burns, a trailblazing transmedia producer. You see, when you ask any director why they make movies or TV shows, The go-to answer always seems to circle back to one thing. It's the story. But what if I told you that the stories we watch on screen are just the tip of the iceberg? Today's audiences are hungry for more, and Caitlin is the master chef serving up scrumptious storytelling feasts across multiple platforms. From blockbuster films and console games to TV shows and global brands, Caitlin is breathing life into narratives beyond the screen. Her portfolio boasts prestigious projects like Pirates of the Caribbean, Tron Legacy, and even James Cameron's Avatar. So hold on to your hats as we journey through the visionary world of Caitlin Burns. And action! Caitlin Burns, welcome to Kyle on the Isle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for having me. And hey to everyone who's joining us today. It's so exciting to be here. You're our first transmedia producer that we have had on the podcast. (laughs) Well, that makes sense because I'm one of the first transmedia producers to be credited. So it's the kind of job where you have to explain both the first term and the second term. Producers across the world constantly explaining to our parents what it is we're actually doing. Right. Running the entire dang thing. But for a transmedia producer, your job is to organize the story and coordinate across platforms. So that can mean film plus television, plus games, plus books, plus theme parks, plus interactive cruise rides and more. All of it needs to fit together. All of it needs to be able to be good on its own. And then when it all comes together, it's so much bigger than the sum of its parts. But more on that as we dive in. Absolutely. I'm so glad you kind of gave us that kind of peek into the world to kind of start here. It's interesting to kind of really dive into the meaning behind transmedia, because I know there's a lot of people that are probably listening that are like, where does this even come from? And I had done a little Googling myself before the show. Obviously, this is something you clearly know, but the trans is really kind of coming from Latin, which is more of this across or beyond, right? And kind of expanding beyond what was once just kind of one thing. When we look at this medium, specifically film and television, it's a place where, you know, back in the day when we were first making films, when The Wizard of Oz was at its heyday, these filmmakers, they made The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz came out. Audiences went and saw The Wizard of Oz. You could maybe get some merch, some books, things like that. And that was pretty much it, right? But now this is evolving into so much more, right? What we've seen over especially the last decade or so 
is really us taking what was once just a TV show or just a film or maybe a book turned into one of those, right? And really trying to take it to the next level. And that's a lot of what you're doing, right? Absolutely. And I'll say that the term transmedia producer is almost old fashioned now, though some studios still use it across the board. Disney still has transmedia producers. And it really depends on the organization who is in charge of all of the different productions. Right. So I've been credited as a transmedia producer, a producer, an executive producer at different times, right. depending on how the PGA credit aligns with it and how the studio or network wants to credit it. But the basic idea is each part of a story can be a different experience. Mm. When you have a feature film franchise, for example, the first one I worked on was Pirates of the Caribbean, mm. which of course was a theme park ride first. Right, exactly. And then became a series of films. Right. And I'll be honest, people didn't expect it to be as good as it was right. when the, when Very the much film so. came out. Yeah. People were like, it's a ride, fine, it's going to be yeah. something, but... They didn't expect it to be as fun as Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush and Gore Verbinski. And suddenly there were 45 different teams around the world as part of the Walt Disney Company making new stories in that world. Mm -hmm. So one of my very first jobs was coming in and helping all those different production teams working on different types of stories, figure out how to do it so that each one could be good. It could be produced on time. They fit together instead of just being the screenplay over and over mm -hmm. and that no one was going to spoil a surprise for right. the next film. So that was a lot. But once those teams started figuring out how to work together and I got to be a part of building that story world and figuring out, okay, everyone can work up to this point. No one can tell this secret yet. That was a tremendous amount of fun, not just for me, and it really was, but it became a much funner process for everyone working on it because we were figuring out how to work together and not worried about stepping on toes because we knew where the story was in its biggest sense. Right. And then the folks who were making the films, of course, were making the biggest story, but there were pieces of history that we could tell in the games right. that weren't going to weren't going to mess with anything in Pirates 2 or 3, but other pieces were inspired by the stories of Johnny Depp's work on his costume. Mm -hmm. So we ended up talking to a lot of people on set who weren't necessarily the director or the star, but who were the wardrobe assistant, who were working with the actors to say, figure out every story that Jack Sparrow had for collecting those beads. Because right. every single one of those beads in his hair has a story. Has a, story. Right. a lot of those found their way into games or books or more. And when everyone's sharing, everyone's collaborating. Well, that's when new and bigger magic can happen. Mm -hmm. So let's take a step back here. So when you first came on to the Pirates Project, where in the timeline of Pirates were you brought in? Were you brought on when they were making that first movie, after that movie oh. came out? Where were you in that process? So I was working with a team called Starlight Runner Entertainment at the time. Okay. And we were a very small crew of people who were the only people other than George Lucas who were really doing this kind of franchise story world building sure. is transmedia producing crazy concept. We came in after the first film because everyone went wild with creativity okay. right afterwards. But how do we get everyone working together? How can right. we tell 
a bigger story together. That was something that there wasn't anyone in particular who could do that organizing with everyone else. Mm -hmm. And we weren't coming in to get people fired. We weren't coming in to stop projects. We were coming in to try and make sure that everyone's project could be the best it could possibly be. Right. And that the whole story was going to be exciting for anyone enjoying it as an audience member. Had they announced Pirates 2 yet? Or was this still just riding yes. on? Okay. So they knew at this point, Disney has kind of seen a little bit more down their own tunnel, right? That we have a hit on our hands. We want to continue to expand yeah. that world. We want to give the fans and the people what they want. In some ways, kind of what you were saying, it was a little bit of an unexpected hit at first, right? You know, maybe there are some folks yeah. at Disney that thought this was going to be a hit, but there's a lot of people that are like, eh, it's based on a theme park ride. It's going to be whatever. Clearly, Jerry Bruckheimer knew, Arne Aviv knew. <laughs> right, yeah, 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 they all knew, clearly. Everyone who watched it knew there was something special there. Right. As, as a civilian audience member coming in, I didn't expect it to be as great as it is. Everyone was so excited by it, but everyone's going off in different directions. And are the characters, do they feel like the same characters? Are the themes going to make sense? Right. And also, whose perspectives are you following? A lot of the fun of this was being able to tell the story of characters who were from underrepresented groups yeah. or who had a very different lens on the story than what was being made traditionally or with the biggest budgets at the time. Right. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that, because obviously a lot of the folks that are listening to this, storytellers at heart, it's interesting because when you talk about why people make movies, why people make TV shows in the first place, whenever you ask the scriptwriters, the directors, they're going to tell you it's because of the story, right? And so mm -hmm. they've made this incredible story. They have put it into what is now known as the first Pirates movie. It's a huge success. Right. The people want more. Disney has teased the second film. They're bringing folks in to expand this story. But now we're kind of expanding in multiple directions at the same time. There's the next movie and an expansion, but then there's all this stuff that you're brought on to do, right? So how are you brought into the story conversations that are happening at the time to make sure how to ride that line of, we don't want to spoil what's coming in Pirates 2. Do you know what's happening in Pirates 2 when you're in these discussions? Or are they keeping you out of that box because that's its own world? Like, how is that balanced? Well, there are a couple of different parts of that. And it, it's different every story world I've come in on. We come in at different times to get different levels of access. But it is really critical to be able to talk to the people with the deepest vision. So mm -hmm. the writers, the director, whenever possible, the leads and the supporting actors and everyone else who we can sure. to understand what's going on in that creative vision. But the first trick is to take it out of the screenplay context. Let's look at this as a big story without putting it into a form. Mm -hmm. So from there, you start plotting it out in terms of the fictional world's history all of the different characters' histories. And when you can look at it from, okay, Jack Sparrow and Elizabeth Swan and Will Turner meet for the first time. And then this happens and this happens and this happens. And then this is the next big beat in that story. Mm -hmm. Then you can look and see thousands of years of history that you can play with in that story that have come before. Right. And you can look at dozens of characters who you might really, really want to explore more about. Dozens of stories from Jack Sparrow that he's alluded to or a rumor that someone talks about. Those are all potential story springs mm -hmm. that could become their own part of the world. 
and even impact the stories in a future film, a future game. And that was one of the most exciting parts of what we worked on with Disney. And then later with Pirates of the Caribbean, and then later on projects like Tron Legacy, where people we'd worked with on Pirates of the Caribbean and others were accustomed to working together. Mm -hmm. At that point, we weren't in a room where people were sort of figuring out how to do this. It was, how are we going to crack this story? How can we make the player story of this video game pay off in the film? How can we make sure that each of these pieces fits together in the big picture in a way that's going to make a real, make a, an opportunity for the audience who dedicates their time to exploring more, really feel like it's worth it and that the payoffs just get bigger. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to talk more about Tron, but while we're still kind of on the pirates thing, you talk about now how we're expanding these worlds, how you look at it, how you kind of approach it, right? Uh, what are some of the examples of the things that you then did when you were brought on oh, yeah. to expand these worlds that you were able to actually apply? So obviously, after talking to all of the writers and the visionaries, we dove into the deeper lore of the world. So in Pirates, that you find really amazing maps, yes. not just traditional maps, but magical, legendary, multi-universal right. maps. We worked with the writers and the fictional cartographer, which is a job, which is a great, great job. <laughs> That's a very cool job. <laughs> Along with prop masters to figure out how all of these pieces of this magical universe fit together. And for me, this is going to shock you. I'm actually a gigantic nerd. Huge, really? huge nerd. I know, right? You've never expected. <laughs> but I spent a lot of time looking at the history of piracy. Oh, wow. And pirates, they have their code, which is really more like guidelines, but they're all pirates and buccaneers in the Caribbean are actually some of the first people to ever write constitutions. Mm. Each pirate ship had its own constitution. Mm -hmm. And even things like workman's comp, or like compensation for an on-the-job injury, you find sort of the source material for modern insurance agreements right. on pirate ships. Interesting. So... All of the pirate guidelines and lore that they talk about, we pulled together all of those historical documents and it was built out into that massive tome and also books that you could purchase. So you can still get the pirate's code. Um, beyond that, we also had the incredible opportunity. It started as a ride, but Disney wanted to take all of the different global pirates, the characters inspired by historical pirates and other parts of this magical pirates of the Caribbean universe and take that to global theme parks again. So once those characters had been defined, well, why should we be telling the same story in every park? Mm. Why shouldn't pirates from those areas have more of a place in the bigger picture of all of these different pirates, of the Caribbean's rides. That was one of my favorite parts, having the opportunity to work with teams on location and expand the global and cultural accessibility of this big story world and have more people have the opportunity to see themselves in those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. You remember you talking to me a little earlier too about how you were able to take the pirates rule and bring it to the cruise lines, like on Disney cruise ships. Is that accurate? Yes. So there are two things that I'm kind of known for. One is these big story world sure. building. The other is if a group hasn't done something yet, a new weird experience, you kind of call Caitlin. I'm kind of a special operations <laughs> experience producer. Okay. So we've done a number of 
weird and wild extensions, whether they're alternate reality games for things like Tron or interactive cruise line experiences. How do you take the two and a half hour Pirates of the Caribbean and turn it into a kind of Rocky horror experience? Right. Okay. We were doing everything from thinking about how AAA console games could reach millions of people to how do we create an intimate experience in a cruise ship theater with 30 to 50 people that all have to be exciting, all have to feel like part of the world, add something to it. And there's more on cruise lines than I ever imagined diving into it. Right. The things that you can do in those spaces because they're interactive, because they have robotics, because they're a huge range of AV fantastic show pieces, you create a totally different cinematic experience in those rooms than you do in a normal box office theater. That is something that always gets me really excited. I am always thinking about what the experience for the person sure. in there is, because across every platform, the thing that's in common is a human audience member. So the more we can do to reach them, the more exciting. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, so you did tease the Tron thing earlier, and this seems like a good time to kind of segue into that. So, yeah. you know, Pirates, it sounds like you guys kind of wrote the book on how are we going to do this? How are we going to expand this world beyond just what it's known as currently as a film and obviously previously a ride? With Tron, it seems like the book has kind of been written at this point, so there's some familiarity there. But it's interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, I imagine part of the Tron campaign was to kind of, for lack of a better term, revive a franchise that was decades old while coming into Tron Legacy. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say these sort of creative projects are a yeah. huge team sport. You know, we were working on this, but so were dozens of other folks in different divisions. And when we came in on Tron, they already had some really strong ideas about how they wanted to take the film from the early 80s and have that story continue on to the early 2010s. So in real time, in the human world, you had that yeah. amount of history to play with. Inside the world of the grid, the computer world that you go into, thousands <laughs> of years had passed. But while the film group team had come in with a really strong sense of where that big story would live, there were so many exciting creative ideas that came in on that project. And it's, I'll say one of the most exciting teams with the biggest energy were Daft Punk and the Disney Music Group. They came in with a mindset of, okay, in the early 80s, all of this CG stuff was the coolest thing going on in technology. What's going on now that's the same? Remixing, co-creation. How can we build into this world this sense of play and sharing? So Tron Legacy had one of the most fun music initiatives okay. I've ever been a part of. With Daft Punk at the lead and electronic music, having a natural sort of remix culture associated with it. Not only did people who were in famous bands like the Glitch Mob get to remix songs off the soundtrack, but audience members, normal people had the opportunity to submit their remixes and have them presented, be able to share them more widely with audiences. And some of the amazing YouTube edits of the trailer to other electronic music got as many views oh, as wow. the trailer itself. It was incredible. And one of the most exciting parts of that was being able to celebrate that with the other people who were working on the project with us because we built a plan to do it. So every time we were working on these big team projects with all of these different division groups, 
we were able to come into the room and not just talk about, okay, we're going to get this done by this time and it needs to be like this, but hey, check out this really cool thing that someone bring to, that someone right. bring to the table. Whether that was an idea from the game team or a really cool remix from an audience member who was participating in the submission process, that inspired so much. But people had to have the willingness to do it on purpose. With the Tron projects, we had a lot of different games too, because of course, it's a world inside a computer. <laughs> and one of my favorite parts of that is that if you played through the Tron Legacy console game that came out around the film, what you did as the protagonist of that story is mentioned in the film. The event, the historical events that you were part of are part of the story right. that appeared on screen. Characters talk about you as the, play, sure. as the player character. And being able to weave those together, people freaked out. Like people freaked out when that, when that line happened. Not everyone. And sometimes you might be sitting in a theater next to someone who does not know what's going on, but that's the magic. When you can have this unique and bigger experience because you're able to play more in a world that you enjoy, that's right. really the goal. And by doing so, people yeah. that are kind of the quote unquote more diehard fans take more away from it, right? There's people that are just going to go see the film, right? But then there's people that are going to go and play the games. They're going to go and watch the YouTube videos. They're going to go and do all this extra stuff and kind of discover these, I guess, for lack of a better term, Easter eggs or whatever it is that they're finding in these worlds, right? Yeah. And then see them pay off later in these franchises and feel an even deeper connection yeah. to it. So there's huge dividends that this pays off over yeah. time. I can put on my like super mercenary business hat and say like, if it's better across all experiences, people like it more and everyone makes more money. And I can say the creators are spending thousands and thousands of hours working on this. And when there are fans who want to spend that much time in the world with you, that you've created or you're creating, being able to show them that you care, being able to see what they've brought back to you be part of the world that you all love, that is the most exciting thing. And I think more creators have a bigger sense of how that interaction works now. When I first started, it was a lot harder to connect between creators and fans. It was earlier internet days, social media, the world we live in now, everyone is right there. You can reach people, you can connect with you, we could tell them what you want. But as studios were learning how to build that and make the business make sense, make the creative make sense, protect the creators who are working so hard to make sure that the vision can come to life. There were a lot of growing pains and a lot of really amazing experiments trying to figure out how we can do this together. And it's a different world than it was in the early 2000s. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit more about these growing pains. One of the things we love to kind of dive into on this podcast is how did you make the magic happen? There's a quote from Walt Disney that I'm always reminded of where Walt says, you know, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. And I feel like in some ways the quote should really be, it's kind of fun to have done the impossible. <laughs> the doing the impossible isn't always the most fun. <laughs> yeah. But once you've done it, it's really cool. <laughs> so cool. I will say that some of my favorite parts of any project are when we're taking on a challenge that is new ground that we haven't been able to do before. I even get really excited when we're doing like 
the difficult, tricky legal intricacies. 10 months with really scary legal teams trying to figure out how to make this happen for the very first time. When everyone in the room is really smart and working really hard at the peak of their abilities to figure out how to make something happen, that is truly an amazing feeling. Whether it's creatively or production, whether it's how can we make this visual effect come to life? Like when I was working with Lightstorm, a lot of the time that goes into like the avatar films is innovation technology. Work that was done to build visual effects and camera was for avatar is now used in medical imaging. Like it takes a long time to make those films, but you also got like huge advances in microscopy and visualization. Yes. <laughs> we talk about how the impossible is possible in the creative industries, but it's also an incredible incubator for new technology, new ideas, new ways of experimenting with how we communicate, in addition to just telling stories. It's one of the reasons I get out of bed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's easy to get up when you think life and death is not on the line in most cases, hopefully not, especially not as a writer, <laughs> right. but we're creating these worlds that have never existed before. We're creating these businesses literally from the imagination. And in the process of figuring out how we do these things that have never been done, we can make magic, not just in the emotions and hearts of the audiences, but add new things into the world that didn't exist before. When you think back to the projects that you've done that are taking these film and TV worlds and expanding them, is there a specific example that maybe comes to mind of like a really difficult challenge that you guys had a point in a project where you really hit a wall and like you're trying to figure out how to get over it that you can kind of dive into a little bit? You know, some of the ones I'm proudest of are some of the failures too, where we worked for 10 months trying to figure out how to allow people to write fan fiction for a story world. But at the end of that time, the legal exposure was too strange or the technology wasn't there yet. And that led me to some of the things I'm doing now with DC and the Batcal collection and Harley Quinn collections, where we're doing direct role play with fans, where we're being able to create fan clubs that also let you play as characters. But without web free technology, we couldn't get the legal agreements to that point. Other times it's how can we get this done in this time period? And that's always one of the hardest and funnest parts where you're trying to figure out how to get these incredibly talented, incredibly capable teams to do something you never expected to have to do within these extreme parameters. Sometimes that works. Sometimes that creates totally new ideas and ways of working that we've never thought of before. Sometimes it does not work at all. There was a time when we were coming in on this really big idea for Disney, which ended up becoming Disney fairies, but there were, four different divisions. Each of them had their own vision of Tinkerbell and what a Tinkerbell-led story world could be. And we're going to sort of start from the Disney Peter Pan, not the book Peter Pan, although there are books of the Disney Peter Pan and Tinkerbell now that are great. And the folks who had been writing books had one big vision of Pixie Hollow and how fairies would work together and how different ones would play with different talents. Another group had a very different, a little bit more Bratz-inspired concept, which wasn't necessarily bad, but how do we take all of these different visions 
and find a path that feels the most exciting for an audience. Like it has the most potential health for people who are going to work across this giant story world. And at that point, that story world was also aimed younger. So what's going to be the healthiest? What's going to be the healthiest themes and stories we can play with? They're going to reach this generation of people with the most interesting and aspirational stories. And so what are the questions that go into making that decision, right? You've got different people coming in, different perspectives, different ideas, different origins, if you will. How do you ultimately say, oh, this is the path that makes, what what goes into that decision-making process? I mean, sometimes it is really strong leaders who are able to make decisive decisions. We ended up presenting a few different scenarios. We had our preferences. We were able to break down things like, okay, who is Tinkerbell and what does this mean at its core? What are the like core themes, core ideas of this character, this world? From there, if everyone can agree on some of those, no matter how big the passions, no matter how high emotions are running, you have a starting point. One of the things that taking it off the screenplay, taking it out of just making it about a story without the format question is humans are really, really good at stories. We're really good at telling them. We're really good at understanding them. It's one of the reasons we've been able to create a civilization as advanced as we can get it because we can envision what could happen next, or we can tell a story and sort of play test a play test some peril without real danger. So when we start breaking these things down, usually it starts to become clear which ones are preferable and whether you're doing that with one executive who might be making those decisions or one director who might be making those decisions in mind or a group of people who are going to be making decisions that's moderated by a leader of some kind. And that's where you have to start. Like, what is the story we want to tell? What do we want to do with and for audiences? And Ultimately, it comes down to everyone's input as well. So we have to talk to everyone who's a stakeholder at a franchise or a big conglomerate, a studio, like that's a lot of people. And you need to be able to get all of their needs and all of their visions. And honestly, a lot of the best ideas come out of those interviews because someone who works directly with fans or testing might have a really important insight that if you're not doing that work to connect everyone would never make its way back into the writer's room. Mm -hmm. Or there might be an amazing idea that someone who is only in the meetings in the publishing office, who is not in the meetings with all the executives is coming up with. And that can crack the whole thing wide open for everyone. But unless you're listening, unless you're building the tools and the processes that let that be shared, you lose it. And it takes longer. It might not be as good. You might lose some of the incredible magic on these teams that are bringing together really talented, creative, really competent people. I imagine in some ways it's kind of a blessing and a curse, right? The blessing that you have all these people that you can go to, but there's also the curse because there's so many people with opinions and thoughts and different directions and places they want to take this. And sometimes it's hard to kind of lasso all those people together and say, this is the path. This is where we're going. I like what you said earlier about sometimes the most successful part of a project is when a decision maker comes in and makes a decision, right? (laughs) That's an incredibly important part of a creative process, right? A big part of my job as a producer is helping to define parameters. What are the edges 
that we're playing with? What are the do's and don'ts? Mm -hmm. If you are within those artistic parameters, you can do almost anything. Right. And it'll fit. It'll feel good. It'll be satisfying to an audience member. And there are other key performance indicators that may hit a business bottom line. But creatively, it means you can work with everyone else who's working on this project. And for a franchise, that's thousands of people working on different types of stories in this world. And it's thrilling when people come into a room with the work of hundreds of people around them that are all working together and can share all of the different things that have come up in their creative conversations. There are so many times when we've had these like interdivisional meetings where someone has brought something to the table and someone else has the other puzzle piece where their team was thinking on this direction, the other team was thinking in this direction, and they just magically came together at the right moment. It can change everything or it can just open up the horizon and everyone can feel the joy of that moment everywhere in the teams working on it. I want to get into a little bit of your thoughts in the industry in general. Yeah. But before I do, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are listening that are like, now, how did she get into this? How did she get yeah. her start? So I'm curious, yeah. what is your origin story? Before yeah. Pirates Came yeah. Calling, what were you doing in the early days? Were you in entertainment or were you somewhere else? I was incredibly lucky early in my career to be coming in at a time where this idea of a transmedia producer didn't yet exist. Sure. <laughs> so I was in the right place at the right time with the right set of skills. My background before that was theater okay. and environmental system science. So ecology oh. and how different plants and animals all fit together. So again, super nerd. Right. But, <laughs> but all works together for what yeah. you are now doing, right? From theater, I was learning how to deconstruct scripts and work yeah. with audience members, that human-centered experience design. With ecology, I was looking at how different systems fit together. So the timelines it takes to make a game versus a film, how are all these pieces fitting together? Well, when you look at my charts, you see a lot of, you see a lot of biology in there. You see a lot of how the world works, how these things flow together. And it doesn't hurt to know a little bit about the data of it as well. Because when you get to a certain scale, you can talk to audience members directly and should, but seeing how things are working for many audience members, you have to understand the data science. You have to be able to see this many people thought this was great. And that's something that you can't argue with necessarily. Like, is that working or not? Maybe the data can help. It doesn't necessarily mean you don't do something to them that they don't love, but it does mean you know enough to know that you're getting a response there. Right. Makes sense. When Pirates of the Caribbean came through the door, I was a first employee at that company other than the founders. And because we had success with the first one, we just kept getting asked to be part of these amazing stories, these amazing experiences. And from there, we just, I really tried hard not to say no if I don't have to. That's taken me all over the place from Disney and Sony and Warner Brothers Discovery to Space Nation, which is commercial space tourism and more. Like it's been an incredible journey where figuring out how to tell stories and create new experiences has been a constant experimental process. But if you know how to approach these things with an open mind, 
if you develop your producing and organizational skills, you can take those with you anywhere. Very good advice. I want to talk to you and pick your brain a little bit on kind of the industry as we know it. Curious to get a little bit more insight as to some of your peaks and valleys, if you will, from your career, starting with uh, one of my favorite questions to ask people, which is, what do you think in your career thus far has been the greatest project that you've been able to work on? Wow. Um, I love most of them. <laughs> I love almost all of them. Um, and, and the ones I think most people probably agree with that. Yeah. yeah. The ones that I don't love taught me a lot. Sure. Yes. Everyone always teaches you a lesson, right? Yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, I'll say like, I have been incredibly lucky with the projects I've gotten to work on. Seeing the Halo universe come to life. That was a game I played before I was old enough to be working. And to see the books and the films and the show and the sequel trilogy and Reach and ODST all come to life. That was incredible. Mm -hmm. I loved Pirates of the Caribbean. It has a special place in my heart. I spent years studying pirates after I worked on Pirates of the Caribbean too. <laughs> Gosh, one of the funnest for me recently has been Avatar because I had been sitting on secrets for 13 years. Mm -hmm. um, that world is so expansive. Yeah. And what is going to be coming in the future stories and the wider storytelling in that world is really, really profound to me. I think that in, in terms of its ambition, like every blade of grass you see on Pandora is an originally designed plant. It all fits together into a massive ecosystem. There's a very short clip in the first part of the first Avatar film where you see the solar sail spaceship. Like they've worked with astronautic engineers like, if we could figure out how to build that ship, it's one that could be built and might be able to traverse the stars. I can keep going because there are so many things to love about the stuff I've gotten to work on. I grew up in peak Ninja Turtle. Oh, sure. And I got to work on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for Nickelodeon. Very cool. That was a peak life experience for me. You know, yeah. it's like that was the fandom of my heart growing I up. And to see that come to life with graffiti and a totally different cultural lexicon integrating and a totally different nuance to the way ninjutsu mm -hmm. was described and all of the different ways that new creators take on different worlds. I mean, it's so exciting. I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to pick your brain. You mentioned that like you were kind of a fan of some of these projects and yes. some of these franchises before you worked on them. I think a lot of people uh, can relate to that, especially some yeah. of the folks listening. Certainly I can, because <laughs> I remember back when I was in middle and high school at home with my parents in South Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we would sit around every week and watch Dancing with the Stars. And years yeah. later, I got to work on Dancing with the Stars, right? And so there's this, there's something that is kind of special about being able to work on these projects, these franchises, these shows, what have you, that were a big special part of our upbringing. What does that mean to you when you get to work on these projects that touched you so much when you were younger that now you get to have a say in how these stories are told? I mean, it is an incredible experience. I work really hard to try and retain the love that you have as an audience member. Mm -hmm. Like 
it can get really easy to get really close to projects and really in the weeds and really like inside baseball professional only hat. And it's really important to be able to step back and like love this amazing monster movie with all of the passion in your heart for monster movies to be able to find that in your core. It really helps because the entertainment industry is hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. You're going to work hard. You're going to have to think around and through problems that are not straightforward at all. Right, right. Creative technology is difficult and you'll find yourself just pulling your hair at times. But when you can step back and really enjoy what you're making, what other creators you're working with are bringing to the table, I mean, that builds you up so much. The team I'm working with now is one of my favorites I've ever worked with. And every day a 3D artist is bringing something in and I'm like, oh no, I have to bring like twice as good as I might've. And every day I'm like, okay, how can I bring my best work? Because someone I'm working with is bringing their best work. This ties directly into what we were just talking about, but also kind of ties into what I want to ask next, which is how do you handle the pressure and the expectations Mm -hmm. that these worlds and your colleagues, for that matter, yeah. inevitably bring in to these yeah. projects. I have also been really fortunate to be working with people who were very supportive. My first team was really, really willing to let me be a way too earnest and sometimes very annoying, like young person in the industry. Yeah. But they saw that I was not wrong either. Mm-hmm. So they were very great at helping me through those things. I also, very early on in my career, became a part of the Producers Guild. Again, good luck to have the credits that early, but I was able to meet a lot of other producers from different formats, from different experience levels. I also was part of the first PGA Women's Impact Network cohorts. And being able to talk to other people, peers, whether they are producers or directors or writers, is incredibly important. And getting over the hurdle of reaching out to people, believe it or not, once upon a time, I was actually very shy, Um, (laughs) but I had to learn to ask the questions, to be able to reach out to someone who I admired or I thought was doing really cool work and to be able to tell them that. And sometimes they answer and really appreciate it. And you make a new friend. Sometimes they don't. It's fine, whatever. But being able to build that network of acquaintances and friends who you can then ask the question like, okay, I'm no longer working with this group. How do I bill? (laughs) How do I figure out how to charge for my services? How do I write a contract? Like being able to ask people who know better than you or have Mm -hmm. been in similar situations as you and really get that sounding board, everyone really needs. You want to be able to engage with people and find your way to the people who you're going to do amazing things with. You're going to have the best time with and not force yourself into situations where it just isn't fitting. And the same is true for workplaces. There will be more opportunities. If you're in a place that's toxic, if you're in a place that just isn't a good fit, even if it's something that you were really excited about or you think is really important for your resume, it's more important to be able to see your path is bigger than one project. The best career advice I've gotten is quit the job, but don't quit your career. Mm -hmm. 
don't put yourself in a situation where your boundaries are constantly being crossed or you're in a situation where people are taking advantage of you and yeah. it's harming you. There will be other projects, but if you lose your health, if you lose your joy in the work, that's when it becomes a bigger problem. And there are so many brilliant, amazing people who I know who have taken breaks, who rest, who have been out of the industry for a decade and come yeah. back and done their best work ever. And I just want to say there's always more opportunities. There's always more need for you and what you're bringing to the table. Absolutely. I think that's a great line and a great message because there is a stigma around this in the industry and it's getting better, but there's always kind of been this lingering pressure that like, you're lucky to be here and there's a million people lined up outside. And if you're not doing this, we can just call one of them and we can just go outside and pluck somebody else in. And, you know, this whole idea that like everybody's replaceable. And yes, to an extent, that is true, right? Like we are all replaceable. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there is a bigger picture. Yeah. There's things that are more important. And sometimes to exactly your point. It just doesn't work. It just isn't a fit. Yeah. You know, there are some creatives that work really well in one way and others that work really well in another way. And just because that may be not a fit doesn't mean there isn't a fit somewhere else. And it shouldn't provide a pressure to say, oh, you have to sit yeah. with this. You have to be here. You have to see the job yeah. through. Because at the end of the day, it's not benefiting anybody, especially yourself, yeah. but also the project, your coworkers, yeah. you know, et cetera, I mean, right? Projects need talent. Talent needs projects, but there will always be more projects. There will always be more people. And that can also mm -hmm. be freeing because in as much as I love to think I am the specialist, there are other people who can do what I do. There are other people who can come in and maybe not do it the way I would, but we're going to be able to see something through if I can't. And if the project and the business is healthy, people should be able to come in and out of it at different times. You don't want to abandon things. You don't want to burn bridges. You want to be able right. to be yeah. appropriate. There's a way to do it. Right. But yeah. <laughs> right. Right. the project will find someone else and you will find other projects. There's always that sort of that fear that this is your one chance and there will be more chances if you let them come to you. There's something in the industry that it likes to make us feel at times like this is the only job. This yeah. is the only thing that's there, right? We've all been in this case. I know I certainly have been where it's like when you take a step back and you kind of just trust the process, when you just say, I'm confident in myself, I'm confident in what I know, I'm confident that what I'm doing is the right thing and bringing skills and talents and what yeah. have you, that it will find its way. There's so many of us that are freelance, right, where you don't know at times what your next gig is. But more often than not, the people that I know that are freelance, they're out there, they're crushing it, they're giving it 110%, and they're not really worried about what comes next because it always comes. It happens. It has a way of working out, right? I, I've done it for years myself. Like, it's weird for me to have a full-time yeah. job today because most of my career, I've been contract to contract, project to project. Totally. I get that feeling. And it's not that it's not stressful. It is less stressful than a terrible full-time job, right. but right. it also means when you're in those freelance contract positions, you're looking at things in a different way. You're looking for opportunities. You're looking for what you might build next. You're also maybe looking beyond a single industry. Mm -hmm. There have never been more opportunities for people with production experience. 
formats. There have never been more formats in need of high quality crew, talent, writers. The world is much bigger than five studios. And there's a real benefit to being able to see if I can't do this right now, there are dozens of other industries, businesses, projects that would love to have me at least for a little while. I have had the opportunity to work with microscopy labs. I've had the opportunity to work with major philanthropic groups, cities, and that's been incredibly fun. Sometimes I've worked in advertising. A lot of the skills that anyone is building in film and television are transferable. And sometimes that can be a good break or a good shift. Even when I've had the most exciting, intense narrative design, experience design, top story world experiences, it's been good for me to take a break and do something entirely different. Mm -hmm. I bring different things back to the next project with me. And it helps me think about the perspectives that I don't necessarily see when I'm wholly wrapped up in one world or another. The world is big. It's going to want you to be in it and enjoy the ride. Absolutely. One of my favorite questions is the next question that I have for you, which I, I love asking our guests because, boy, do we get a, a myriad of answers. Uh, okay. The question is, what is the most Hollywood thing that has happened to you in your career to date that you can share that the doesn't most, violate NDAs, you know, blah, blah, blah? The most Hollywood. Um, yes. hmm. That's a toughie because there's a lot of Hollywood things and there's a lot of very funny things that have happened right. in life. Um, yeah, some of those see. like two worlds kind of collide. Okay. I loved the Men in Black shoots because I'm a huge, huge fan of puppets. Being able to go to the puppet shop in one part of the studio and see legendary puppet masters making creatures that are going to be on screen with Will Smith. And then, you know, walk out the door and, and Tommy Lee Jones is like grumbling his way past. Like, hey. Yeah, it, it's hard to explain what it's like to be around people who... You don't know, but you're so intimately aware of their facial expressions because you've spent so much time enjoying their work as actors. It's an incredibly strange experience, and I am not that famous, so I don't know what it's like <laughs> right. on the other right. side. But it must be incredibly surreal, that sort of intimacy that you feel regardless of your conscious mind knowing that you are a stranger. Mm. <laughs> but you simply know these people because you have spent hours of your life watching them more closely than you watch your family members when they're talking. It's, it's incredible. As we're kind of wrapping up before we get into our final yeah. act here, you obviously worked on a lot of these projects, bringing these stories to life. What is a project that you haven't had the pleasure of working on yet that you would love to get your hands on. Like if I gave you a genie in a bottle and said, here, <laughs> take whatever franchise you want and go to town. What are you dying to get your hands on? Um, have you ever heard of Meow Wolf? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a very good answer. In my heart of hearts, I am truly a really weird nerd. Mm. And I am deeply, deeply in love with the pop surrealist fantasy environments that Meow Wolf makes. It is such an amazing experience to go into these funhouse worlds, but also, yeah, it, it is such a great company for its support of emerging artists. 
They all change in different ways as new artists come in and out, even though the core experiences are the same year round. I don't know. I would love to play around in that world. I'd love to. And I'm so excited to see what they're doing next. Oh, I was literally just in Vegas a few weeks ago and I got to experience my first male wolf with the one in Vegas. Uh And I was blown away and I had heard from friends and, you know, you see on the internet and all this, but until you're there, you really can't describe it. You really can't like comprehend it the same way reading about it or watching videos as you can when you're actually physically there. It's absolutely unreal what they're doing. I think for me, I am fully committed to the idea that fun is important. Oh yeah. Fun and joy are really important, serious business. And I think it's very easy to get very wrapped up in ourselves and very heady and very concerned and anxious. And we need places where we can just go and be immersed, enjoy experiences and get out of our heads and open up that part of ourselves that loves to explore, that's curious, that's all of those, you know, latent human like gatherer in the wild instincts and that just opens up all of those doors for me while showcasing amazing art amazing play and every time you go if you go with other people you'll discover new things it's something different yeah exactly yeah i think that's all so magical and so cool what they're doing there it's unreal uh, I love what you just said about the the fun is important because this is actually what perfectly leads into my next question, which is I'm always curious what people think about the impact of their work, right? Mm-hmm. I guess the real question I have here is do you think that what you do matters? Does it make a difference? Is it important? We always joke in the industry like we're not doing rocket science. We're not saving lives, you know, and yes, we're not saving lives. But do you think what we're doing has a purpose and is important? I absolutely do. I have spent a lot of time studying and nerding out over why exactly it means something for Mm. us to make crazy stories for each other. One, it's how we think about abstract things. It's how we understand our world and understand the different parameters of it. A movie that you go to might not change your mind about an issue. It'll definitely change your mind about what everyone around you thinks of that issue, what your neighbors think about it, what your community thinks about it. I think that it's really critical that we provide as many opportunities for people to tell their stories and express stories in different ways as we can so that we can grow as individual humans and beyond. I grew up in a pretty beige suburb. I had a great love of books and games and movies, and I wasn't able to connect with people the same way I was able to dive into stories. And once I got older and was able to leave the place I grew up, I found people through stories. And I think now, like back then, the internet was in its infancy, et cetera, et cetera. We find each other through our stories and through the places we love to play more than ever before. And the more different viewpoints, the more different opportunities to explore and find things that get us going in different ways, the more we'll find our communities, the folks who are going to help us thrive. So Tinkerbell is born from a laugh and and is brought to the tinker houses where people engineer and play with things. And she's like totally discombobulated. She's just been born. Like, what is going on? And she's in this giant leaf dress. She looks in the mirror 
And she's like, okay, this is too big. I can't move. Takes some scissors and cuts it into the iconic dress. And then her hair is in her eyes. And she puts it back into that iconic ponytail. And then she looks in the mirror and it's not quite right. And she puts puffballs on her head and on her feet. And she chooses the look. And the history of Tinkerbell, the original design, was this amazing homage to Marilyn Monroe. But for a whole generation of kids, they saw Tinkerbell make all of those choices herself. And she has this wonderful feminine look, and it's combined with engineering as her core talent and innovation and leadership and friendship. And I know that for a few girls, they remember that scene when they go to school and they get into movies, and that means everything. Mm. Even if we only get to reach a few people with our stories, the people who we do reach, it means a lot. And you might not be hauling in James Cameron numbers of seats in a theater, but sometimes you don't have to. Sometimes it's enough. Yeah, absolutely. You teased this a little bit earlier, but I did want to circle back on it about your kind of falling in love with the industry through, was it Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park. <laughs> what was it about Jurassic Park that hooked you? What wasn't it? I, I, it <laughs> a great answer. Yeah, I mean, gosh, really, right? I mean... <laughs> It's easy to love Jurassic Park. Yeah. There's so much in it. You know, it was the pinnacle, the, the most complete representation of both puppetry mm -hmm. and emerging computer graphics. Mm -hmm. The story is great. Dinosaurs are amazing. Yeah, dinosaurs are always cool, right? No one in that movie is phoning it in. No one, like, forgot to show up Not for work that day. It really is such an amazing ride. And it holds up today. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like everybody has uh, the gotcha film, the, the film that inspired them mm -hmm. to get into the industry. For myself, oh, yeah. it was The Wizard of Oz. Sounds like for yeah. you, it was Jurassic Park. All good answers, all good it films. Was. We're moving into our final act here, our famous Hollywood hot seat. So if you're ready to humor us, this is 10 rapid fire questions. Give me the first answer that comes to your mind and we'll see what kind of fun we can have with this. Are you ready to play? I'm ready, Kyle. <laughs> All right. This is the Hollywood hot seat. Hollywood hot seat. Question number one, favorite movie. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's Jurassic Park. It's definitely Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Yeah. <laughs> number two, favorite TV show. The Expanse. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. Very good. Gosh, I haven't seen that in a hot seat. Ooh. <laughs> Call me back after you start because okay. it's so good. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, number three, the fictional character that I identify most with is? Ooh, probably Jean Grey and Daria. Ooh, okay. I mean, it's a mix. Nice. It's hard to pick one because usually it's just an assemblage, but yeah, they're you, in there. You can get close. Yeah, yeah that's all right. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> What's your biggest guilty pleasure movie or show unreal unreal oh, yeah that yeah it's a As good somebody show. who worked on the bachelor franchises i found it even more interesting but uh yeah, yeah really entertaining I mean, stuff huh there are layers in there for everyone and it there manages, are a lot of layers yeah. it captures that like that feeling of 
tawdry in a good way that you're going mm. for those reality shows to watch to me. So like yeah, yeah, it really so many layers to that show, but yes, yeah. guilty pleasure. Yeah. I think it's a great answer. Next one. Favorite movie quote. Ooh. No, hundred percent. They, they were trying so hard to figure out whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether or not they should life lessons. Number one, right there. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. yeah, I think that's great. When you're on set, what is your go-to craft service snack? Peanut butter pretzels. You need the carbs, mm, yes. the salt, yes. and the protein, or else you're going to fall yes. over. <laughs> you and me are in the same boat on our crafty snacks. I literally, yeah. <laughs> net, 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 producer Natalie is pointing to the yeah. off-screen here. Yeah. I uh, will tell you, my entire professional life, really like hit a new stride when I figured out we needed more snacks all the time. Blood sugar was responsible <laughs> for most conflict. <laughs> yeah. Funny how that works. When people are fed, things seem to go a little bit smoother, yeah. right? Who is your Hollywood crush hall pass? Ooh, also tough. Um, I mean, like, not to go full open relationship on it, but people are amazing <laughs> and enrapturing and very attractive. And I think it varies based on what I'm watching at the time. <laughs> there you go. Hey, that's all right. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so far out of my lexicon as someone who's been married for decades. I'm like, no, just not there for me. But like, wow. We're not thinking like that anymore. Who is a talent that you are dying to work with? Ooh. Um, okay. Writer Charlie Strauss has not made movies yet that I'm aware of. I may be wrong. Sorry, Charlie, if I'm wrong. An amazing sci-fi author, super smart, super exciting. His Laundry Files series is like Bond plus Lovecraft plus like the best parts of airplane novels. Would make amazing films. Would love to work with him. Amazing. If you could trade places with anybody for a day, who would it be? I'd want to trade places with an Imagineer. Being able to get inside that amazing wizard lab, that would be an experience I'd love. Mm, that's a good answer. And then our final question, what's the best advice that you have received while working in this crazy world that we call entertainment and who did it come from? I can't remember precisely who it was, but it was an amazing producer. It was on a panel of female producers. Her advice to anyone entering the industry is rest, but don't quit. Jobs come and go. Projects come and go. The fit isn't always there. And life happens to all of us. You may need to take time or someone near you may need you more than this project does. It's not the end of your career. It's not the end of your creative craft. Don't quit. We need you. I think that's solid advice and a good way to bring this whole journey together to an end here. Caitlin, we really appreciate you joining us today and sharing some of your insights and your stories. And it's been really fun getting to pick your brain here today. If people want to follow you on the socials, where can they follow you and learn more about you? I'm on Twitter. I'm on Blue Sky, Caitlin underscore Burns on Twitter. I'm easily findable on LinkedIn. I love hearing from people. Blue Sky, Facebook, all of the socials. I'm on TikTok and Instagram, but less often. I've made myself pretty Googleable because there one of go. my favorite things is hearing from new people, learning new crazy ideas, hearing people's creative stories. It's really what I love. So 
the best gift you can give me is a new introduction. And I'd love to hear about your work. Beautiful. Well said. Caitlin, thank you again for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. And uh, I'll look forward to chatting again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. Kyle on the Isle is an official podcast of Magical Ant Productions and is recorded in the heart of Hollywood, California. This episode was executive produced and directed by me, Kyle Molson. Produced by Natalie Izquierdo and Lauren Wilson. Editing by Cody Crabb. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it five stars. Every single review goes a long way. And while you're at it, give us a follow on our social media channels at Kyle on the Isle. Thanks for listening. I'm Kyle Olson, and I'll be saving you a seat next time on the Isle. And cut. That's a wrap, folks. <laughs> <laughs>